welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Eric Bull, Director of Public Affairs. Today I'm joined by Spencer Tuma, our Director of National Legislative Programs, and B.J. Tanksley, our Director of State Legislative Programs. We are fresh off of our annual meeting and wanted to talk about some of the policies that our uh, delegates there voted on. Spencer and B.J., thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah. It was an exciting time, getting ready for the session to kick off, uh, get past the holidays here, and really kick into sessions. Yeah, we're glad to be back. Absolutely. We've got a lot going on with um, both the national news and the policy that we adopted are kind of overlapping some. So we're going to start there with the top-line issues in the news right now. Um, Spencer, the USMCA, U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, uh, has finally seemed to broken have broken free. It had been stuck for a year, basically. Mm-hmm. But it looks like we actually have movement on that now. So what are what are we looking at now? It's been a re- really big week for trade policy in the United States. And earlier this week, we did learn that House Democrats, who had a working group put together to negotiate some of the issues that they thought were problematic in the USMCA, um, those individuals have come to an agreement on renegotiating that those particular items. Um, not a lot of major changes, particularly for agriculture. Actually, no changes to that portion of the agreement, um, and that was able to bring everybody to the table, and it looks like we'll have a vote in the House next week. That's great, and it may take a little bit while, uh, a little while longer for the Senate to get to it because of all the impeachment stuff going on. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they may not get to it until January at some point. Yeah, you know, there's really a lot going on in Washington right now. It's kind of funny because not a lot is getting done, but a lot is certainly going on. Um, so in addition to USMCA, you mentioned that the House is moving forward with articles of impeachment against the president. Uh, but aside from that, we've also got to fund the government by next right. Friday. So um, I know that the appropriators have been working really, really hard to reach an agreement that will fund the government, that will hopefully fund the government not through a continuing resolution. I hesitate to say that's going to happen, but mm-hmm. it very well could happen. I know it there's been like a lot of discussion. fairly likely yeah. at this point. So um, all of that can change in the next 20 minutes, but for now, we are on track to fund the government by the end of next week. Yeah, and I believe they also passed the National Defense Authorization Act. So yes. Yeah, they have a lot going on the past week or two right. out there, and it's. Um, I think they... Well, what, they have another week before they uh, leave for Christmas, and mm-hmm. so it really all has to happen within the next few days. Right. The House will be in session next week, um, and the Senate will be in for a couple days, but I don't think at this time they plan to be in the whole week. Uh, the reason that USMCA might get pushed to January in the Senate just because is because they have a lot of things going on. Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate from Kentucky, has just said that you know House Democrats have really hung on to this agreement for far too long, and yeah, they might be able to get it done in the House, but they've basically tainted their chances of getting it done this year in the Senate just because procedurally it's really hard to get done. So we're hopeful that that will come up very soon after the first of the year in the Senate. Yeah. And you mentioned there's a lot happening this week on the trade front. The other big news that Mm -hmm. may have gotten lost in a lot of the impeachment talk is that there's a preliminary agreement, it sounds like, with China now. Yeah, very, very good news coming out of the administration. Actually, just this morning, the White House officially announced a phase one deal has been agreed to with China. Um, A lot of interesting things in that agreement. We've yet to see the text, but I was able to sit in on a call earlier that went through some of those details. 
Um, particularly, you know, China in this agreement has agreed to purchase a significant amount of additional products that span over agriculture, manufacturing, energy, and services. So mm-hmm. um, it's really great to have that commitment by the Chinese government. A lot of the things it sounds like that are in this agreement are things that the U.S. is already doing, and now those things are just going to be reciprocated by the Chinese government, particularly on intellectual property uh, and also on technology transfer, which were the reasons we're kind of in this tariff yeah. situation in the beginning. Yeah, those are not insubstantial. Those are really kind of the core central central issues mm-hmm. that we were talking about to begin with. So right. that, that really is a big deal. Now that the agreement has been reached, um, there were some additional tariffs that were supposed to go into effect on Sunday, just here in a couple right. days on December 15th. Those are no longer going to be in effect. They'll be suspended indefinitely. Uh, and also no additional increases. Also, some of the existing tariffs are going to be lowered as part of this agreement. So um, we are anxious to see the details of that, but at this point it sounds like it is a positive step forward uh, for agriculture and for the U.S.-China relationship as a whole, uh, and we look forward to seeing what Phase 2 has to offer. That's, uh, that's great news. Great news. Um, like everybody says, you know, these are the topics we've been talking about quite a bit. Um, what will prevent, will this have to go through the same process that USMCA has? Will we have to worry about congressional holdup and that kind of thing? Or or does this go through those same processes? I haven't been given the full details on what procedurally will have to happen for this to go into effect. My guess is since it is just a partial agreement, similar to what we're working through with Japan right now, that right. it probably will not have to have congressional approval because it was not <clears throat> negotiated under the jurisdiction of Trade Promotion Authority. Fantastic. So um, I I don't want to speak too soon because that could always be changed and, and those details weren't provided on the information I was given. But um, at this point, I don't think anything would prevent this from going to an ef- into effect first quarter of next year. Yeah, I didn't want to ca- catch you off guard there. No, just you're know, fine. You know, we, we get excited about things and want to hope that we can actually see these things get done as quickly yeah. as possible. Uh, when we talked to our members at annual meeting, we talked about trade quite a bit, mm-hmm. and they were talking about the negative impacts that they're seeing across agriculture. Um, and we want to see those things come to conclusion as quickly as possible and would hope to not have uh, those kind of same kind of holdups we've been fighting with over the other issues. Right. Yeah, and most of this stuff, like the tariff went into place uh, unilaterally by the president, and they can be taken off unilaterally as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So these side agreements, I I think, also can be just signed by the president but don't have to go through a formal approval process. It's interesting on the tariffs. I'm glad you brought that up. So um, one thing in particular that I have been hearing a lot about with the Phase 1 deal is this dispute resolution chapter in the agreement, um, and particularly related to tariffs. Um, Basically, it sounds like in this new deal, there's going to be a process by which if countries are not playing by the rules, that tariffs can be levied uh, by the opposite country in order to kind of help enforce that agreement. Mm -hmm. But those have to be proportionate to the actual damage that's being done. Mm -hmm. Um, So it sounds like they'll be kind of held to a certain standard rather than somebody just be able to put tariffs on every single product when really one industry is what's being impacted. So it's interesting that that came up in my conversations. Very good. Well, and BJ, you mentioned annual meeting and that we've had a lot of conversations with members over the past few days. Um, one of the biggest topics of conversation was definitely something you've spent a lot of time on this year, and that was the issue of feral hogs in Missouri. Yeah. Where uh, where did we come out of that um, for a manual meeting with our policy? So, yeah, I, I think you and I have spoke on one of these in the previously talking about our feral hog study group that was formed of Missouri Farm Bureau members from around the state that had actually been in counties affected by feral hogs. It didn't necessarily mean that every member that was there 
had had feral hogs on their property, but the counties that they came from had been had seen feral hogs or had feral hog damage. Um, so those came together um, early in the summertime, and, and they brought a whole list of proposed policies through the process they went through. Um, largely, those proposed policies were what our members adopted. Um, it's actually probably 10 to 12 lines, maybe mm-hmm. even more of actual policy, about a page worth of, of position statements of Missouri Farm Bureau, um, where we're saying, you know, we're for uh, eradication efforts. We support federal and state governments and what they're doing to try to get rid of feral hogs, whether that be money from Department of Conservation or USDA. Um, we also say if um, if public lands are closed to feral hog hunting, we think that they should allow for incidental take during other hunting seasons. We also believe that there should be increased efforts to make sure that those areas don't become safe places for feral hogs. There's a whole nother, whole list of policies there where we're saying we need to make sure that feral hogs don't become an industry here in the state of Missouri. We want to make sure that the focus remains on getting them eradicated off of our land. We know that we've had feral hogs for some time, but we want to make sure that the goal stays eradication um, and that we're doing all we can. So part of that policy was saying, hey, if you're going to close federal lands, which we've heard news about since policy development started, um, we needed to be doing everything we can to get them off uh, off of those lands. You know, one of the big fears we hear from from those that are against closure is that was become safe places. Mm-hmm. And I think that's easy to say, hey, we've got to do everything we can to make sure those don't become safe places. And when I talk to people that were that were actively advocating for the closures, they had no intentions of making those safe places, but they wanted to make sure that there was never a place where someone might be incentivized to go drop a feral hog to then come back and hunt at another time. There's been lengthy debate over how the extent to which that has been an issue. You know, people moving a hog from one place to another or a group in order to then be able to hunt them. Um, but I think we can all probably agree that if there's no place that's safe and doesn't do an in- individual harm, um, those are those are kind of places where people might have felt like this is a place there's, there's not a lot of bad impact if I drop a hog here and come back and hunt it next mm-hmm. month or next year. Um, without those safe places being available to hunters, uh, there's a lot less incentive for anybody to ever think of moving them. And I think one of the main things to talk about when you think about that is once you've won in places like West Central Missouri, where they've gotten them away from some of the lake properties there, um, you want to make sure that they don't come back by any other means. Um, and so I think I think that's a big deal uh, for this whole conversation. Um, and so, yeah, I think... Uh, I, I appreciate the work that all of our members did from down in that area. It wasn't easy. We did ask quite a bit of their time. They came to two separate meetings where we spent a whole day really just wallowing over feral hog issues. <laughs> Ever truly, um, hate to use that word, but but it is the truth. We spent a lot right. of their time, and I think we came away with some good policy that's going to allow us to hold the agencies accountable um, and, and, and going forward, a push for some things, both legislatively and with the federal government, um, talking about making sure we're not seeing the movement of those hogs, mm-hmm. um, talking about prosecution if we do see the movement. I think this is an all-hands-on-deck. Uh, we have a major issue um, along the southern third of the state and we want to make sure we limit that as much as possible and hopefully at some day we can say uh, we're really knocking these things back. I think a couple of things that our policy really did and really took a stand on, BJ kind of mentioned it, but in particular strengthening the power of law enforcement to catch and prosecute those who are transporting live feral hogs and then dropping them in places and and the second thing is taking a stance that Missouri Farm Bureau does not support any form of profit to be derived from feral hog 
activities. Mm -hmm. So whether that's hunting, whether that's transportation, we want them eradicated and we support no profits in that industry Mm -hmm. because that incentivizes those species to stay. Yeah. And so you you did mention, Vijay, that um, there's been some developments on the um, closing of the March Twain National Forest and uh, just in the past few days, I think there have been some announcements there. Uh, what, what's the latest news on that? So yeah, I guess it was last Saturday. Um, the National Forest Service announced the closure of their lands in Missouri in the Mark Twain National Forest to feral hog hunting. So effective immediately is my understanding, those lands are closed to feral hog hunting except for people that have a valid um, firearms deer, archery deer, or um, firearms turkey tag. And so those things will go into, a, those things will be allowed um, as the seasons come and go, but otherwise the the lands are closed to feral hog hunting. Um, the the big news for that is that I have seen a little bit of is there's some pretty large penalties for feral hog hunting. They really do want to disincentivize this. They want to make sure it's not happening. And the other thing is that incidental take, um, there seems to be some confusion possibly over what that means. That means if I'm out there actively hunting other game, I could shoot a feral hog if it happens to walk by, but I think that people would be taking that wrong if they thought just because I have a tag in my pocket, I can go out and actively hog hunt. That would mean you were either deer hunting illegally, if you were doing it in certain ways, either over bait or other ways that people may hog hunt, or if you were, um, or you're feral hog hunting on federal land. And so I think people need to be really careful about that. The intention is for if someone is actively hunting legal game and a feral hog walks by to allow that to be legal but not to be out there having a loophole in in what this is this really is to try to make sure we're not out there pushing these hogs around unintentionally okay and the news of the closure was news to us as well at missouri Mm -hmm. farm bureau you know we actually did not have a position on whether that federal land closed to hog hunting or not and i think that's important to point out our policy Mm -hmm. was not changed over the past couple of weeks i mean it was not changed at our annual meeting either so while we did adopt policy on what should happen if a federal land is closed to feral hog hunting. On the closure itself, we have no position. Right. Okay. Well, moving on to something else that was every bit as controversial, if not more. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about dairy policy, Spencer. Right. There there was a lot of discussion at annual meeting about some dairy proposals. And rightfully so. You know, I was talking to someone earlier today in a congressional office, and the dairy industry has changed a lot over the last several years. And particularly, what we were talking about on the discussion around dairy is the federal milk marketing order system, was, which was developed several years ago. And a lot of things change over time, and the dairy industry is no different, whether that's the technologies that the dairy industry is using, whether that's improvement in storage and transportation or differences in consumer trends. Um, The dairy industry has had a rough go of it over the past several years in particular. And so what happened and kind of how this all came about is last year at the American Farm Bureau annual meeting in New Orleans, there was a significant discussion from a lot of states that have significant dairy interests about how we can, as a group, work together to reform the federal milk marketing order system. Mm -hmm. And I will be the first to tell you there are probably about 10 people in the whole country who really truly understand how federal milk marketing orders are set up, why they're set up the way they are, and why the work they w- why they work the way that they do. But what the American Farm Bureau delegates voted on was to develop a working group made up of different state interests from different states, all producer driven, to work with staff at the American Farm Bureau and advisory resources. Um, Missouri had the ability to provide an advisory resource uh, in Dr. Scott Brown to that committee. 
And that committee was tasked with coming up with a list of recommendations for delegates in every single State Farm Bureau to consider as they look through policy development. So I want to be very clear, this was not a top-down mandate from the American Farm Bureau. That's a question I've had a lot over the past couple of days. It really was something that came up through the grassroots process. American Farm Bureau said, okay, we have this directive, let's take a look at it, and then allow our state farm bureaus to look over those recommendations, see what their delegates support, and see what they don't support, and then we'll have that final discussion on what the policy of the American Farm Bureau Federation will be in January in Austin. I firmly believe that it is going to take an organization like American Farm Bureau to really move the needle on the discussion of changing federal milk marketing orders. Us alone as Missouri Farm Bureau, we are probably not strong enough to change that conversation on our own. So that's why it's important to have other states weighing in on the process as well. We adopted in our policy book a lot of recommendations that the American Farm Bureau Working Group had come up with, but not all of them. And we changed some of the things that they had sent down as well. Um, And so it'll be interesting to see as we look over next week at the American Farm Bureau Resolutions Committee meeting and then at the full delegate session in January what the ideas of other states are and to see where we'll ultimately land on the issue. Yeah, what were maybe a couple of those top-line takeaways from the policy that the members did end up adopting? Yeah, so the biggest one, I think, um, and it actually happens to be first in the policy book when you look through the new ones, has to do with block voting by dairy cooperatives. So currently, if you're a dairy cooperative, you have the ability to cast a vote in a federal milk marketing order voting process for every single dairy producer in who is a part of your cooperative. Yeah, uh, as, a, as a block. As a block, right. yeah. There's, that's where that term comes sure. from. So um, Missouri Farm Bureau's delegates did adopt a policy opposing that block voting, but they adopted policies supporting what's called modified block voting. And what that means is if you're part of a cooperative, if you sell your milk to a cooperative, you will have the option to vote in that FMMO election or, or on that issue. Um, you just have to request a, a ballot individually. For those individuals who do not choose to cast a vote, then the dairy cooperative will have the ability to cast a block vote for those individuals who chose not to vote yeah. separately from that process. So it makes it so that you aren't required to give away your vote to a cooperative just right. to be a part of it. Exactly. Um, a couple other things, you know, generally speaking, looking at how milk is priced in federal, how milk components are priced in federal milk marketing orders, um, but also looking at transportation and how milk and milk products are moved around the country. A lot of that movement is controlled by the existing federal mar- milk marketing order system. Uh, and so potentially looking at some reforms to those things as well. Great. Those are going to be very challenging to reconcile, mm-hmm. I know, because there's so many different interests at stake in different parts of the country. And you get a system as complicated as this is, it's hard to ever unwind it or, yeah. or uh, simplify it, but hopefully they'll be able to make some progress. Yeah. yeah. Sure I think so. the encouraging thing is, is just starting the conversations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, start somewhere. and when I was asked about it, it was talking about that. It was the fact that we all know that dairy has been through some tough times and that usually brings these conversations up. And I think this is a great time to have these conversations about what can we do to do mm-hmm. things better? 
Um, and like like Eric said, there's a lot of complications with this yeah. whole process. Uh, maybe we could take some of those away. Maybe we can make some of them stronger. But we've got to do everything we can to, to make sure that those dairy people mm-hmm. across the United States are able to continue to, to thrive and do what they do. Um, the truth is we have a product we all want, but we have mm-hmm. to make sure that the farmer is still able to produce it at a reasonable rate. So. Yeah. Yeah, so BJ, we have a couple more things here that are more focused on the state level. Um, One of those is biodiesel. There was a provision that was proposed and and adopted by the delegates regarding that. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it really was a small change in our policy. We've always supported a biodiesel standard. Um, It was previously the policy said we supported a 10% biodiesel standard. What we've seen by looking at other states um, and and what some people have tried uh, talking about biodiesel standards was a seasonably flexible. You know, there's some fear of what happens with biodiesel in the winter. Is it more likely to gel? That type of thing. And so some states have gone with the the idea of a seasonably flexible. Um, So whether it be like five Five percent in the wintertime, working your way up to twenty percent in the summertime, uh, or other flexible seasons. Um, then, then that's what we we just allowed ourselves to be flexible with that standard. So it really wasn't a huge change from Missouri Farm Bureau standpoint. But I have um, heard rumor, and actually there is bills out there to to look towards a seasonably flexible standard for biodiesel in the state of Missouri. Um, and and obviously, if we bring that up, it would be a, a huge conversation in the Capitol. But I do think um, we're in line to be ready to. Support support legislation like that. You know, um, soybean farmers from across the state have seen um, prices go down drastically over the last few years. The tariff situation has made that even worse. I think we've got a large number of legislators and leaders who think this would be a great time to do something to support biodiesel and the soy producer in the state of Missouri. Um, because anything we can do locally will help support that price against these drastic swings one way or the other. Um, if we can develop better markets here locally, um, then we'll have some protection and some safety net against um, international trade swings. Um, that can be a lot less predictable than knowing what our domestic need is. And if we can produce a green energy right here in the state of Missouri that can fuel us into the future, I think it's a, a great opportunity. So it'll be something we'll be looking at as we start rolling into session. Sure. An issue that is um, very important to a lot of our members uh, in the rural areas especially is health care. And I know that's not directly a piece of agriculture, but it yeah. definitely matters to everyone who works in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would we um, adopt along those lines? Yeah, so when you talk about rural health care, these are one of those topics I talk about a lot where people go, Farm Bureau, rural health care? Well, we do do a lot more than just agricultural policy, where we're talking about things that are good for rural Missouri. You know, in recent months and weeks, we've seen a lot of national news stories talking about the lack of rural ac- access to health care in rural areas, even primary care. You know, the first line of defense, you've you've got something, you know what it is, you just need an antibiotic or you need to be referred on to the next kind of specialist. Um, that primary care isn't available for a lot of people in all of rural America. This isn't just a Missouri issue, but we're seeing less and less availability. Um, looking at those issues um, through our questionnaire uh, that went out over the summer and, and through the policy development process, we did see several um, changes come to our policy. Uh, we're talking about medical school. We want to make sure that there's enough medical school slots in the state of Missouri and residency slots. You know, what we hear is that our schools in the state of Missouri are able to 
uh, train doctors, but then they have to find those residency slots and there's not always a slot available. Um, there's also the story of if you get them into areas of the state, then they're more likely to stay. So maybe by increasing those across the state, we're able to get some of that done. Um, and then also allowing doctors to cr uh, practice across state lines. That's another major issue. Mm -hmm. um, I was visiting with some people in the Capitol yesterday and we were talking about the lack of access and this came up and they were saying the truth is a lot of our population truly does live along a border, whether that's St. Louis or Kansas City, but even beside that, um, if you live along a border, the next the next largest city may be across state lines. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to come practice in the state of Missouri, they have to get completely new licensure, and it may be a way that we can bring more practice practitioners into the state um, by allowing them to have reciprocal agreements and stuff. And this is something that other states have been a part of. It is not a brand new idea for the state of Missouri. It would just be us joining into that, mm -hmm. um, something we haven't done recently. And then the lastly, and probably the most controversial, is um, nurse practitioners and advanced practice um, assistant physicians and that kind of thing and allowing them to practice more broadly. Um, our members agreed through the questionnaire process and our committee and our members at annual meeting that we should allow them to to have more broad range of practice um, across the state. And, and I think this is just about having more care provider options. Um, and the, as as I've had several conversations, if 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 you got a broken leg, if you got something that needs to be fixed now, you need to make sure you have somebody within a reasonable distance to be able to, to address that. And, and the truth is, um, we don't have a lot of doctors in rural Missouri, and maybe that's an option to try to fix that. You know, yeah. rural health care is an issue that we haven't been talking about a lot at Farm Bureau, um, but I do think it's... Um, I do think it's something our members are facing every day. It's not just about the cost of health care. It's also about whether or not there's someone there available to talk to when you need something on a quick basis. So um, we'll be diving into a brand new issue this year in the Capitol. Um, I'll be completely honest. I'm a little nervous about it because it's something we haven't had a lot of a lot of time in, but excited to try to bring that perspective of Farm Bureau where we're those that need it. You know, we're not fighting over who gets to bring it to us, but we sure do want to have more options available right. in rural Missouri. Well, the last issue that we'll touch on is uh, something that affects both of your areas, both national and state, is broadband policy. Um, we've made some significant strides in the past couple of years on the state level especially, and also on the federal level we got some bills, uh, some language and some very important uh, bills over the past couple of years, but what uh, what policy changes did we see there? So the biggest change to Missouri Farm Bureau policy this year on broadband is trying to bring more accountability and verification to the Federal Communication Commission's standards for broadband programs. We've talked about it on this podcast before, and, and if you've been at a Farm Bureau meeting, you've probably heard BJ or I or Dan Cassidy or Janie Dunning talk about it too, but at this time, there are not a lot of accountability measures in place in some FCC programs. So they'll basically give money to, in, in this case, the lowest bidder, who says they can reach the most amount of people for the least amount of money and give them the best broadband. Um, unfortunately, we have found that a lot of those claims are not verified until after some of that money is already awarded. And mm -hmm. I, I use this line a lot with our congressional offices. Our members want broadband. They realize the value of it, and they realize why they need it. A lot of them use it for their business or their day-to-day -day life. Um, but our members also care a lot about government accountability and judicious use of taxpayer dollars. And that's really the intent of the policy that was put forward this particular year. So what the policy does is it would support FCC putting more 
economic analysis in place and more verification on the front end of those programs so that hopefully after we award the money and get three years down the road, we can see that it's actually achieving the goal that it was intended to achieve rather than look back and say, oh, well, I guess that really didn't work. Yeah. So um, that's that's the main goal of that policy. Yeah, that's uh, always a good thing to do to try to keep good track of the tax, mm-hmm. tax dollars we're spending. Um, well, so the policies that were adopted here at annual meeting, um, Spencer, I know you're about to head out to Washington, D.C. to talk to AFBF um, at, the, at the National Resolutions Committee up there. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through the process a little bit about where things go from here? Sure, I'd be glad to. There's a little bit of a difference of what we do in Missouri, but I think some people would be surprised to learn that a lot of it's kind of the same. So next week, um, actually, let me back up a little bit. The day after we got back from annual meeting, myself and the legislative team and President Hirsch sat down and went through every single new statement that was adopted into our policy book this year. And we separated those into national, federal government statements and state level issues. Uh, Then when we went through that list and then I submitted the national recommendations to the American Farm Bureau Resolutions Committee for their consideration. And every single state goes through this process. So just like every county in Missouri has the opportunity to submit resolutions, every state in the nation has the opportunity to do that with American Farm Bureau. Next week, Mr. Hurst and I will go to Washington and we will, uh, that sounds like the title of a book, BJ's laughing at me, Mr. Mr. Hurst and Spencer go to Washington. Um, Anyway, So the American Farm Bureau Resolutions Committee is made up of state presidents of all the state farm bureaus, and they're divided into subcommittees, very similar to how we structure our resolutions committee. And they'll go through every single policy that was submitted and debate that in their subcommittees, and then the full committee will review that tentative policy print. That will be submitted as official tentative policy for American Farm Bureau, and then the voting delegates from every state will have the opportunity to discuss, debate, and ultimately adopt those policies at Austin, Texas at the annual meeting in mid-January. Great. So the process is starting to wind down. You're almost towards the end of it, but still another month to go. Yeah. No, it's it's it a lot of fun. It keeps going for you. <laughs> it's really interesting, and I've probably said this before, but just like in Missouri, how we have different regions of the state who care about different issues, for example, feral hogs in the southern part of the mm-hmm. state, dairy, particularly in southwest Missouri, um, it's like that at the American Farm Bureau meeting, too. You have states from the Midwest who have different feelings than the states from the South, and then people from the Northeast who have different feelings than people from the West. And so it's interesting to see those differences on the national level, too. I think sometimes we can think, oh, my gosh, in Missouri, we have so many commodities. I don't know how we can agree on anything. I promise it's not just us. Yeah, <laughs> so um, yeah. it's just really interesting to see those regional differences as well. And um, But that's what makes Missouri Farm Bureau and ultimately American Farm Bureau, the strongest farm organizations in their field. I agree. All right. Well, thank you both for taking some time to walk us through what policies the members adopted. Spencer, good luck out in Washington, D.C., and look forward to hearing how it all goes. Sounds great. Thanks, Thanks so much.